Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Wednesday, January 22nd. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. On today's show, I will look ahead to the upcoming provincial budget and we'll be speaking with public finance policy analyst Alex Hemingway about that. He has some concerns about always looking at a balanced budget. MPs vote with their own party 99.6% of the time. That stat comes from the Samara Center for Democracy and former NDP MP Nathan Cullen will join me to talk more about why that potentially could be concerning. And, of course, it's hump day, so it's time for another edition of That's Whack Wednesday. But to begin today's show, I am joined in studio by Kamloops Mayor, Mr. Ken Christian. Ken, thanks, as always, for coming in. It's my pleasure, Jeff. So uh, let's just start with looking here at the weather. I mean, uh, last week you come in, you were all bundled up, you had your toque on, and... It looks like you're a little more comfortable here today. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, thank heavens for that. Although it is a bit slippery out there, I think uh, people need to slow down, particularly in shady places. It's iced up since uh, last night, and so uh, there's been a few accidents already this morning. I want to make sure everybody's commute is uh, going to be a safe one, and I think we can expect that uh, over the next few weeks because the snow banks on the side of the road will melt during mm-hmm. the day, and they will freeze at night, and you can anticipate uh, some uh, slippery sections. Yeah, we've definitely heard of some issues here this morning. So take your time and and be cautious on the road. So uh, council did have a meeting yesterday, believe it or not. It was 27 minutes long. Um, Pretty short. I mean, was that, do you think that was a record for you while you've been in office? Well, it it was a short meeting yesterday. But remember, we started at 10 in the morning. We had a... uh, hour-long Committee of the Whole meeting, and then we had a closed Committee of the Whole meeting that went another hour and a half. Uh, We had our uh, closed uh, council meeting, and uh, and that was actually shortened. So uh, by the time we got into the public meeting, there was 28 minutes or so uh, left. Uh, We had a couple of property items to deal with yesterday and and some of the engagement uh, items. But, uh, yeah, every so often uh, that will happen, uh, and uh, you have the option, of course, of canceling, but I don't think that's really good government. So uh, we have meetings, uh, be they short or be they long. Well, that's good because it gives us stuff to talk about. And, uh, I mean, it's always better to have a meeting. You never know what can come out of them if you guys are, are together, right? So always good to see that you guys are getting together and doing some good work here for the city. Um, was there anything specific, uh, you know, yesterday that really stood out to you? I mean, there wasn't a whole lot on there on the agenda-wise that, uh, you know, resulted in, in a you know, big talking points for me anyways. Yeah, you know, uh, an hour talking about our committee structure doesn't make for good radio, I don't think. And, uh, uh, you know, the uh, property items that were up yesterday were a bit uh, mundane, but uh, nonetheless, it's a statutory responsibility of uh, cities, towns, and villages to deal with those kinds of things. So uh, that had to be done. And uh, uh, as uh, we had a closed meeting, one related to uh, a negotiation and property issue, the other one related to a lease. So those are items that uh, stay closed until such time as... uh, you know, they're brought forward and uh, there's reasons for that under the community charter. So, yeah, from a, a outward facing uh, perspective, yesterday was kind of a slow news day at council. Um, I guess, are you expecting kind of that to be an anomaly here moving forward? I mean, it looks like, you know, budget, supplementary budget items are coming out here later this week and you guys are going to start going through those. I mean, those are probably going to make for some lengthier meetings. So maybe nice to have a bit of a shorter one here this week. Yeah, well, I mean, even look last week, 
during uh, that cold snap, uh, we had a four and a half hour meeting and uh, a lot of very weighty topics. And uh, uh, occasionally it'll, it'll uh, you know, wax and wane, but uh, we are heading into budget season. We have our supplementary budget items coming out on Friday. Uh, and we'll be uh, engaging uh, as a council uh, with that next week. And then we're going to be engaging with the public on those items uh, in a public budget meeting. Uh, so there's certainly lots uh, coming for, forward uh, as well as we head towards the uh, referendum for the Council Centre for the Arts. Uh, lots uh, to talk about there. So, yeah, it's it's a busy time of the year for not only government in Kamloops, but uh, I think every other municipal government within your uh, reach. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, on that very light agenda yesterday, I mean, you did improve some, some stakeholder meetings related to the Kamloops Centre for the Arts. I mean, these were always expected to, to be taking place, but, um, you know, you have, have some upcoming meetings February 12th, February 13th, and February 20th, along with uh, there's that website that's available, and there's also some information going to be relayed at Blazer Games. So lots of opportunity here for people to uh, get informed about the Kamloops Centre for the Arts project and what it's all about. I guess just, um, I, I assume from a government standpoint, really hoping the public take the time to figure out what it is they're voting on on April 4th and, and um, you know, are aware of what this project actually is. Yeah, and, and uh, along with the Center for the Arts Society, uh, the City of Cowles wants to uh, uh, make sure that uh, we have an informed electorate uh, so that they know exactly what this project is and what it isn't, uh, and uh, they know the mechanisms of how to vote. We'd like to see a voter turnout, uh, you know, upwards of 40%. Uh, realistically, we're probably looking at around 30%, uh, <clears throat> but we want to make sure those voters are informed about this project and what it means for Kamloops. Yeah, we need to start one of those uh, get out the vote. Uh, campaigns or whatever here in uh, Kamloops because we don't have that much time. What, three months left? Not even until that vote comes. So uh, it's going to be approaching here pretty fast. Uh, one thing that did come up yesterday um, at Council, it was it was short, like I mentioned, but uh, you know did, you brought up um, some issues when it comes to support for those less fortunate here in the community. Uh, you had mentioned that you were going to be meeting with the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Selena Robinson, on Monday. Um, I guess just what, what are you hoping to accomplish out of those conversations? What are you going into those meetings with Selena? Um, you know, what, what are your talking points at this stage of the game? Well, you know, it's an ongoing conversation. It just happens that uh, next Monday have another opportunity to continue the discussion. But, uh, you know, we have uh, affordability issues related to housing. Uh, we have uh, a, a number of uh, uh, parts in the housing continuum that we need to bolster up in Kamloops. And uh, uh, Selena Robinson has been uh, true to her word in terms of uh, adding additional uh, supports to the Kamloops housing uh, menu. And uh, uh, next week will be another opportunity to do that. Uh, one of the things that uh, I have been uh, talking with other mayors about in particular is that there are some people that, uh, you know, uh, their uh, mental health condition, chronic mental illness, just does not lend itself to them being comfortable in shelters or in, in some of the uh, supports that we've put in place. So I think we really need to look at uh, housing for chronically mentally ill in this community and in other communities and, uh, you know, be strategic about how we do that, uh, particularly when you had weather like we had last week. Uh, you know, there's some people that really when they're off their meds, they can't look after themselves. They have uh, conditions, uh, you know, bipolar disorder, uh, uh, schizophrenia, things like that, that uh, don't allow them to be congregated with others. And, and so they're at great risk. And, uh, you know, I think that we have to recognize that as a subset of the homeless population in our community, and we need to act towards supporting them. 
Yeah, and I think that was really highlighted here in the last, you know, week or so. I mean, the the, the pop-up shelters that uh, Ask Wellness had put out there, those were very well used last week. We saw, I believe, the mustard seed was full again here over the last couple of days. I mean, it's just really a highlight of, of a need for more social housing or, or um, you know, government housing for, for people like you had mentioned who are, you know, in those less fortunate situations to have somewhere to go because they can't always go to these shelters. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I was speaking with staff about last week was that uh, in uh, severe conditions such as we had last week, uh, you really get your your homeless census down because those people have sought out shelter of some sh- uh, some uh, sort. Uh, so we've been very interested in what those numbers have been and uh, where those people came from, and uh, so that gives us a pretty good idea of what the gap is in terms of our ability to house people in this community and uh, so we want to use that data and uh, relay that data to the government and and, uh, look for the kinds of supports that will meet those unique needs that are left out on the street. Oh, is this a, I mean, you you mentioned you've been kind of having this conversation with uh, mayors kind of throughout the district. Is, I assume this is something that every community is kind of dealing with it in its own unique way. And, and Kamloops is, you know, has its own unique problems probably when it comes to this issue. But it's definitely something that you probably have a stronger voice of is if you go forward as a collective. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, uh, naively, uh, I, I think myself and a lot of other people thought, uh, you know, a decade ago that this was a phenomenon of the downtown east side of Vancouver. Uh, but it's not. Uh, it's uh, all over the place. And and certainly in the interior, there are serious issues. And even in communities smaller than Kamloops, uh, and uh, those uh, communities are experiencing this and dealing with it in their own unique way. Uh, and so, you know, this is a problem that is uh, all over this province and, and not just this province, but, but it's one that there's unique solutions in different size cities. So, what myself and, and mayors like Lynn Hall of Prince George are trying to do is put forward the notion to government that there should be unique solutions for cities our size. And, uh, you know, uh, Leonard Krogh in Nanaimo, Colin Bazran in Kelowna, uh, myself, uh, those cities have, uh, you know, unique uh, problems that aren't like those in downtown uh, Vancouver mm-hmm. or Victoria. So we want to put that forward. Perfect. Well, Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I guess anything else you want to throw on the table while I have you in here right now? Never throw anything on the table. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Good advice. Well, thank you so much for coming in, as always. Really appreciate it, and I'm sure we'll have a a lot more uh, detailed conversation to go through here next week when when we get into budget and all that fun stuff. So I'm looking forward to it. That was uh, Kamloops Mayor uh, Ken Christian, of course, talking about yesterday's uh, council meeting and some uh, meetings that he has coming up here in the next week or so. Uh, Coming up after the break, it is Wednesday. It is hump day. It's time for another edition of That's Wag Wednesday, so stick around. That's coming up next. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on January the 22nd. It is a Wednesday, the middle of the week, hump day if you will. And you know what that means? Well, it is time for That's Whack Wednesday. It's That's Whack Wednesday. Air 
those who don't know how this works, I take a few things that have happened here in the last few days. If I think they're ridiculous or whack, if you will, I will let you know about them and why I think they are pretty whack stories. So let's start with Donutgate. Yes, hashtag Donutgate. Yesterday, as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was getting set to attend the Liberal Cabinet Retreat in Winnipeg, he decided, as many people do here in Canada, that it would be a nice gesture to go and get some donuts to bring to the meeting. So, Trudeau goes and attends a local bakery and picks up seven boxes of donuts from the Winnipeg-based store called O Donuts. Immediately after this picture goes out on Twitter, people just start roasting him. People start saying that Trudeau is using taxpayer money to buy these tasty pastries that should have been got at a place such as Tim Hortons where the prices are lower. Sorry, that in and of itself I think is a little bit... Now... I was honestly a little bit turned off that people suggested going to Tim Hortons as opposed to local donut shop would be a good idea because not only am I sure am I sure that these donuts at this local shop are better, but it does more for the local economy than Timmy Ho's. And that is exactly how O Donuts went on to defend itself. Now, some people were going on to the store website, picking out these most expensive donuts that you could buy in the shop and assuming that Trudeau would only buy those crazy expensive donuts, only those most elaborate, gluten-free, low sugar, each sprinkle placed in the exact right spot by hand donuts, which of course was not the case. The owner went on to say how important it is to shop local because of a number of reasons, which make perfect sense. It keeps money in the community. That shop uses local flour, eggs, and butter, which helps support other families in the community. By shopping at one of their two local donut shops, people are supporting some 30 employees that work there. It's really easy to make a significant impact on the community to shop local. Yes. In fact, that is indeed true. So in the future, maybe don't trash someone for buying local products. It's because it really does make more sense for the Canadian Prime Minister to go buy a truly Canadian product and not go to a chain restaurant that is now owned by Burger King, an American company. So to everyone who trashed Trudeau for buying local yesterday, I gotta say that is a little bit... Now, an interesting story out of the Okanagan here this week. Well... Maybe interesting isn't the right word. I know what the right word is. The right word is... <laughs> so a man at a West Kelowna winery ended up costing the company he worked for some $162,000 by, get this, pouring wine down the drain. That, my friends, is a little bit... Yeah, this individual was transferring some delicious grape juice from one tank to another. And during this process, he is supposed to switch a valve and do a 15-minute check to make sure that everything is going smoothly. Well, he didn't do that and ended up pouring over 5,600 liters of wine down the drain. That just makes me want to cry, man. And the real kicker? This is the second time that this has happened. He dumped 11,000 liters of wine down the drain on another occasion. Man, that is just... There's only one way to say it. Oh, that is whack! And uh, not surprisingly, I will say this also, he he was fired. So, um, you know, no one wants... To, we don't want to see anyone lose their job, but when you are a little bit incompetent, it can happen. I feel bad for the guy because it was, uh, sure, just an honest mistake, but... Uh, 
I mean, he got to know the rules. He got out of line. You got whacked. Everybody knew the rules. And an interesting piece I found out of the UK. Now, the poorest third of the United Kingdom's older working age adults today now have worse health than people born a century ago had at the same age. That is somewhat disturbing to me in the sense that I thought we were supposed to be getting better when it comes to health outcomes and the ability for the medical field to make, you know, big strides and improve our health. But when it comes to those less fortunate, that just doesn't seem to be the case. And it is pretty sad. Overall, 32% of the poorest third of women born in 1968 and 1970 reported a limiting long-term illness when aged between 30 and 59. Now, that compared with 12% of the richest third. And in those born in 1920 to 1922, the prevalence was 23% among the poorest and 13% among the richest. So, in other words, the later generation had a far larger health gap than the earlier one. It's not good. It's not good that things seem to be getting worse. Um, that gap between rich and poor is getting bigger over time. And uh, it's just a shame because we always feel like those, those kinds of gaps should be shrinking when it comes to our health outcomes, even when it comes to just the, the, um, the income that one possesses. You know, we always expect that to kind of shrink a little bit as well. At least I do. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm the one who is, uh, you know, hoping that the, the, the ones at the bottom of the totem pole can slowly work their way up and the ones at the top of the totem pole, not that they're going anywhere, but maybe that totem pole gets hammered in a little bit to the ground and they bring it, uh, you know, a little bit closer to what normal people, quote unquote, um, are experiencing. That's kind of how I envision the world working. It should be fair for everyone. Unfortunately, that's not the way things work. And uh, I guess there's really only one word to use to describe that. To wrap things up here, let's not trash people for buying local. Let's not waste delicious wine by pouring it down the drain. And let's help our poorest individuals just get a little bit healthier. This has been... That's Whack Wednesday with Jeff Andreas. So there you have it. There's a few stories that I thought were a little bit whack here this week. And uh, if you agree or disagree, well, you can uh, give me a shout out on Twitter if you want at Jeffrey underscore Andreas. That's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y underscore A-N-D-R-E-A-S. This is going to be a weekly segment. So if you have a story that you think is a little bit whack, feel free to tweet at me or you can email me uh, J-A-N-D-R-E-A-S at Stingray.com. Shoot me an email. I'd be loving hearing your stories. So if you want to participate, feel free to jump online and get in contact with me. I would love to hear from you. We got more Jeff Andrea show coming up after the break. I'm going to be talking about the BC budget and maybe how our province is a little bit too focused on having a balanced budget. I'll be talking more with Alex Hemingway after this. So please stick around. Listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show and thank you so much for tuning in here on Wednesday, January the 22nd. Looks like that sun's really coming out outside right now, so that's a, that's a pleasant surprise here today. Um, I got a, a guest coming on here from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He was looking at the BC budget and uh, talking about why having a surplus at all costs maybe. Maybe that isn't the best of ideas. I am joined now by economist and public finance policy analyst at the CCPA BC office, Mr. Alex Hemingway. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time here. Good morning. 
So uh, before we get into kind of, uh, you know, what this whole article that you wrote was all about, I just wanted to sort of get the feels as to why you wanted to do this. I mean, you wrote this piece entitled, A Surplus at All Costs, Question Mark, Balanced Budget Fixation Hurts BC. So why was this something that you wanted to dig into a little bit here? Yeah, so we, we have an interesting pattern in, in budget making in BC in our in our provincial government and this spans, you know, the different political parties. It's not about the current government, it's about the previous government as well. And the the pattern is that typically uh, on budget day the government will uh kind of lowball uh, uh the fiscal situation of the province. So they'll essentially uh budget as if things are gonna be worse than than we're really expecting based on, on the sort of raw uh, uh economics and the raw numbers. And so what happens is at the end of the year, you uh, 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 tend to get these surprise surpluses, or, or even if you're not in surplus, you're in a better position uh, uh, than you thought you were going to be. And, and, and so, you know, uh, folks might think, well, you know, what's the problem with that? That's maybe harmless, and, and maybe it's even prudent to, to build in that extra room. Uh, but the issue is uh, uh, when there are uh, challenges that we're facing in this province, when we need uh, additional investment in areas like housing and childcare and, and, and poverty reduction, climate change, and so on, uh, we really do want to have a clearer picture of what the resources are that are available to us so that we can make informed democratic choices uh, about what to do with those uh, resources in a very wealthy province. And it, and it seems, I guess, uh, you know, from, from what you've put together for your, your data that you've collected for this piece, you know, it's um, it, it almost could be a detriment, I guess, to always want to have a balanced budget, right? I mean, um, there, there's opportunity, I guess, to spend some money now, which will have better economic impacts later. Is that sort of the argument you're making, that uh, spending now will have a better spinoff if we spend it on things like social services as opposed to just focusing on paying down debt? Well, yeah, that's that's key here, and you know, uh, of course, it always depends on what you spend it on. But when you invest in uh, areas that have medium and long-term economic payoffs, when we invest in our infrastructure, transportation, invest in housing in a, in a province that's facing a real housing contract uh, uh, crisis, and that uh, uh, imposes costs on not only families but also employers. Uh, you know, when we have a childcare crunch, those investments uh, in those areas, particularly uh, when we're at a time when when interest rates are very, very low, the cost of uh, government borrowing is very, very low, uh, the returns to those social investments uh, are actually higher than uh, uh, the interest rates that we would pay. So we're actually losing money uh, if we don't invest adequately in those areas. And, you know, it's important to say that we have been uh, investing, those investments in those areas have gone up in the past couple of years, Uh, but the issue that we're flagging here is that uh, the the needs still uh, are there and there's still room to, to make make additional investments. So what do you, I mean, I don't know if you have an opinion on this or not, but I guess why do you feel like this might be the case? I mean, when you look at, um, you know, spending money, as, like every dollar spent on social housing will have a, I don't, I'm just making numbers up, but we'll say a $2 economic spinoff, right? So $1 is like spending $3 or whatever the, the exact numbers would be. I mean, I feel like a lot of those sort of circumstances are pretty well known by the public and of course by politicians that, you know, if you spend $1, it'll have a much bigger impact than just that $1 spent. But yet when you're just paying off debt, that really is the only impact it has, right? That $1 equals $1 of, down, of debt paid down. Uh, so I guess, why do you think there's such a fixation on, on balancing the budget? Do you think that's about, you know, 
it's appealing to the voters to see a balanced budget, to see that there is some uh, fiscal responsibility being taken uh, at the government level to, you know, make sure we're not in uh, billions of dollars of debt. I mean, I'm just curious, where yep. do you think that sort of starts from? Is it the finance minister that just wants a balanced book and, and, you know, maybe these other ministers might push for stuff, but it doesn't look as good in the public eye? Where, where, where does things start? Well, that's, you know, I think that's one of the puzzles here, and that's, uh, you know, an interesting element. So first of all, just to say, uh, you know, deficits, of course, or, 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 you know, skirting close to deficit is not the only way to fund these additional investments. We do have room to raise additional revenue, particularly uh, w- with taxes that focus on very high-income earners, uh, the wealthy in our province, and, and corporations. From an economic standpoint, we do have room to raise additional revenue in that way. Uh, but putting that aside, in, in terms of even if we don't have additional revenue, uh, why don't we make room of uh, make use of that uh, fiscal room that we have, even uh, without changing taxes. Yeah, I think it is a, a, a issue of our political culture in BC. You know, when you look federally, uh, we've actually moved away from that sort of fixation on deficits. Uh, uh, there, there are, uh, uh, you know, moderately sized deficits being run federally, and the sky hasn't fallen in. Uh, our credit rating hasn't been downgraded, uh, and voters don't seem to mind too much either. Uh, uh, when you look at the the election results. So uh, I think our political culture here in B.C. lags behind. I do think that it is still seen as a big political risk to, to run a deficit in this province, and that's why I think it's important you know, for all of us to have these conversations and, and uh, uh, talk about you know, w- what is uh, the best and most rational way to, to make use of the resources we have. Yeah, and I think that's an important way to look at it is uh, you, know, you almost need to have these conversations to know um, exactly how people feel about it, because if you just pay off no debt, I think that would be detrimental as well, but to, to all always be focused on, uh, you know, getting that book balanced, I think might also, you know, as you mentioned in your piece, could could be harmful as well. Uh, the last uh, headline or, or uh, subheading, if you will, in your piece is surplus at all costs or long-term social and fiscal well-being. I guess, um, you know, with, with what you wrote here in this piece moving forward, are you just sort of looking for more of a balance, I suppose, between those two pieces to, to not always look at one as being better than the other, but really to have a focus on both? Well, no, exactly. And that's, you know, uh, uh, when we look at the long term, of course, we we don't want to be planning to run deficits year after year and uh, uh, and the and of course uh, that's not that's the opposite from the problem we've been having uh, we do want balance in there you know I, I mentioned in the piece that even the international credit rating agencies uh, note that BC is still a low tax jurisdiction and and I'm uh, quoting them here still has the flexibility to raise taxes while remaining competitive with other jurisdictions so you know you don't just have to take it from us uh, we do have room to to increase those investments and, and we can also, uh, as is the main focus here, move away from uh, 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 padding the budget in, in, in this way that is always overshooting uh, balance uh, and, and make sure we're actually deploying the resources we have at hand in a smart way uh, that can meet our social needs and that's actually going to pay off economically in the medium and long term as well. Well, it's uh, definitely a timely piece. So we had, uh, the, the provincial budget will be coming down here in the not-too-distant future, so uh, definitely going to be uh, interesting to see if uh, any of this kind of advice is, is taken into account. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be looking at some of those same old dog stories where we're looking at that fiscal responsibility and trying to have that balanced budget, but uh, maybe there'll be uh, a little bit of um, balance as well when talking about how to go about spending some dollars to make sure that services are being improved. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Alex. I'll give you one chance here before I let you go. Is there anything else that you wanted to highlight or or, or inform the people about when it comes to this piece that you've written about being 
um, you know, watching the, the BC budget and how it's going to be, um, you know, uh, worked around moving forward. Anything else that you want to want to say before I let you go? Well, there's one really striking number that I, I, I want to leave folks with, which is that, you know, if you look at the, the pattern of provincial uh, government spending over the past couple of decades, as a share of our total economic pie of our GDP, of, of the income that we produce as a province each year, that public spending has declined quite substantially. So if we were spending today uh, the same share of GDP that we were back in 2000, we'd actually have $7 billion uh, more available uh, each year to invest in social and environmental priorities. So uh, just remember that we're an extremely rich province, and it's a question of uh, uh, how we make use of that uh, wealth and prosperity. Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak to me here today. I think it's really interesting work that you guys do at the CCPA office, and this is just another one of the uh, interesting things, uh, pieces that have come out in the last little while. So thank you so much for doing this, Alex. Really appreciate your time. I appreciate it. Thanks. That was Alex Hemingway, economist and public finance policy analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Of course, that is at the uh, the BC office. So you can take a look at that article. Like I had said, it was mentioned. Uh, it was called, sorry, a surplus at all costs. Balanced budget fixation hurts BC. So some interesting stuff. It's uh, it's, it's it's data that you have to kind of look at and wean through and and uh, kind of make some judgments for yourself. But it's definitely worth the read and definitely um, you know peak some thoughts in your brain that you might not have had otherwise. So I'd say give it a read and, and take a look and, and see if you agree with uh, with with Alex's uh, conclusions there. Um, so coming up after the break, now we'll we'll take a switch. So continuing on the political theme here, MPs. So looking at the federal books now, MPs vote with their party 99.6% of the time. Does that number seem maybe a little too high? Well, I'll be talking to a former NDP leadership candidate about that after this, so stay tuned. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show, and thanks for tuning in. The Samara Center for Democracy put out some data here recently showing that MPs vote with their own party 99.6% of the time. Now, that's not a surprise that MPs are voting with their party more often than not, but 99.6% of the time seems like an incredibly high number. So does that seem reasonable, or does that sound like maybe there aren't enough politicians here in Ottawa that are thinking for themselves and making what they believe to be the best decision? Well, I'm joined now by a... A 2012 federal NDP leadership candidate, former House leader for the official opposition, MP for the riding of Skeena Bulkley Valley, Mr. Nathan Cullen. Nathan, thanks so much for taking the time to join me here. Uh, it's my pleasure. So let me just start by getting your thoughts on that initial figure, because I, I saw you put this out on mm -hmm. Twitter, so that's why I came across this data in the first place. And 99.6% of the time, MPs are towing that party line. Um, you know, it's not a surprise that they're doing it more often than not, but that seems like an absurdly high number. Yeah, I think it's, it's fair to think that most conservatives that get elected are going to think conservative thoughts on bills and vote that way. But... 80%, even 90%, but nine, wow, 99, that, that really stunned me. Although, I, to be fair, I can't say I was totally stunned, and that's the problem, is that there's a culture within Ottawa where we're, we're very uh, leader-focused these days in our politics, and that's, who knows who started it, but it's the reality that the leaders have huge impact on what happens in elections and how their parties do. A lot of MPs uh, get elected, um, a bunch of them maybe get elected on their own talents and genius, but some of them also get elected on the party brand and whether their leader is popular or not. And 
So who do you work for becomes the good question every elected person should ask. You'd, you'd hope that the answer would always be, well, the people who sent me to Ottawa or Victoria or wherever. But the truth of the matter is, and when push comes to shove, oftentimes the power uh, that is concentrated in the leader's offices is um, really high. <laughs> it's exceptional. And when MPs want to vote a different way, they can oftentimes um, face punishments or exclusion. And we just read about that from a, a conservative fellow in Ontario who wanted to vote differently and was stripped of his, his roles in Parliament. And you never heard about it until later, but... That that is uh, somewhat rare, but not a, a you know a completely rare story, and and that's a problem, I would argue, for that connection between voters and who they send to represent them. So, with that in mind, I guess you know where does sort of the the blame lay? I guess I don't know if blame's the right word, but just sort of like is it yeah. is it something that starts at the top, and you know leadership should be um, you know giving out less punishment and whipping their votes uh, less, or or does it start with MPs sort of kind of making their voice known to the leaders that hey, I want to vote you know a different way than you're telling me, or where does the ball start? I guess. Well, I think I, I mean ultimately the responsibility is on the person standing in the House of Commons and. When you stand up and vote a certain way, um, you should feel proud and right about that. I know I had some tensions with my party when I was in office, and some of them, in the most extreme cases, get gets down to a point of like, you know, is this fit right? <laughs> should I be here? And uh, you really, there's there's hard conversations that happen. I guess, where does the blame lie? Uh, responsibility ultimately, I think, is to the the MPs. Canadians don't seem to care sometimes you know you i've raised this issue in the past and people kind of shrug and i say well if you have any faith in the system at all and the idea of democracy is that you a bunch of people run somebody wins and then they do their best job to represent the people in their part of the country when we undo that when we get too cynical about that then who's who's really running the country and it it isn't that group of 338 mps it's it's oftentimes unelected people in the prime minister's office or in the leader's offices who wield extraordinary amount of power and could walk down Main Street, B.C., and no one would know who they were. And that's a problem for me because the accountability should come back to those we elect ultimately for making the decisions they make. So I think a couple things. I remember the Reform Party trying to change some of that. Preston Manning was big on that for in his early days as leader. That sort of fell off. I think we as Canadians, when we elect somebody, uh, do a better job holding them accountable, uh, particularly over issues, and, and, and also changing this connection that a leader and the strength of a leader is often, by the media sometimes and others, seen by how much control they have over their caucus. You hear this sometimes, right? Oh, the leader has lost control of their caucus. Well, what does that mean for a leader to be controlling their caucus? Well, you know, sure, people shouldn't be saying things completely opposite every single day to what the leader is mm -hmm. campaigned on themselves. But controlling those MPs does not mean that they vote 99.7% of the time along the party lines. I think that's, it's gotten too far. We've got to swing that pendulum back a bit where if it were 80%, would that be a problem? I, I don't think it would. And I don't think voters would necessarily punish a leader whose caucus showed different views on, especially the real contentious issues of the day. I do believe that, uh, you know, MPs are, 
there to represent their constituents, so they should be taking their constituents' thoughts and beliefs into consideration whenever they go into any vote. There's obviously, uh, you know, certain issues where you pretty much have to toe the party line, and it's understandable to some extent, but 97% of the time is a pretty mm. extreme, or sorry, 99.7% of the time is yeah. an extreme <laughs> amount of times. 97 would be an improvement. <laughs> 99 is where we're at. Yeah, and I, I think it's back to that idea of, has this just gone too far? And, uh, you know, can we can we bring it back to something a bit more reasonable? I think that is going to take leadership. I think it's leaders standing up and saying, "This my strength as a leader does not mean that I dictate every vote for all of my colleagues, and I see that as strength, not weakness. And then it's going to take Canadians hearing that and saying, I'm going to reward that. I like the way that that person speaks about leadership. Um, and I, I want to support MPs that will be in that person's team. Um, that being said, that's a that's maybe not the first order of people's thinking when they go into the ballot box, right? They're not thinking about necessarily how our democracy is working. They're thinking about issues like the economy and climate change and other things. Um, making democracy uh, front and center wouldn't be a bad thing because I think if your democracy is healthy, all those other issues, the day-to-day issues you care about, education, health, that stuff, that gets addressed in a way better way Mm -hmm. than the current system that we have right now. Um, with, with all of this in mind, Nathan, I'm just curious, you know, going back to your time in Ottawa, um, you know, I don't know how often you would have been necessarily voting with your party, probably more often than not. I think that's safe to say. Do you think it would have mm-hmm. been this oh, yeah. extreme 99.6% of the time, or do you think... Um, I, you know, I, I don't actually know my record, and I can point, if I go back through my time, I can point to the places where I had real arguments with my party. Um, sometimes I did end up voting against, sometimes I ended up voting for, because there was a a larger argument made, you know, this issue was smaller than this larger issue that we're fighting for, so come along. Um, I like teams. I like to be in a team. I like, you know, having colleagues and trusting that we're in this together. And so that camaraderie is very important. I, I didn't find, we were also, I was, for my entire time, I was in opposition. And I think sometimes the pressures in government to toe that party line that you're talking about are much stronger because the, you know, the weakness of the prime minister now, because his caucus is not under control. Right. I noticed with Trudeau in his first year, there seemed to me more opportunities for his MPs to vote different ways. And even just in the four-year term of his first time in office, that got less and less and less, and it became much more our gang versus your gang, and we're all going to stand together no matter what. And that's where your brain turns off and your ego kicks in, and that that doesn't usually make for good legislation, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does make a big difference when you're looking at a minority. I mean, you're you're counting a lot more yeah. almost on some yeah. of those votes, right? You're, you're doing the <laughs> not, math oh. in your head, and if you miss one, then that sure. could be the difference between a pass or a fail, right? Right, and that's what we have in D.C. right now. We have a very thin majority for a government that's in a type of coalition, and you can see why that, what I talked about, that larger picture of a budget or some initiative for the whole, you know, education for the whole province, as opposed to a, a smaller vote on a smaller issue, I can imagine that will probably happening in Ottawa. I think we're in for a bit of a wild ride, actually. Everyone's pretending like the government was just reelected and nothing really changed. I can tell you, I've been in minority parliaments and majority ones. Everything changes. It's, it, the power isn't as concentrated in the prime minister's office, and I see that as nothing but a good thing. I think the prime minister or the party in government having to really make their case and argue uh, the merits of any bill or any budget, like sincerely, is way better than 
a majority government where they say we're introducing a bill and we guarantee it's going to pass because mm-hmm. we're just going to whip all of our MPs in the line and that's it. Mm-hmm. That's that's when Parliament's at its least. I think this minority might show us Parliament that's a lot more effective and more listening to Canadians more, which I think is a good thing. Right on, Nathan. Well, I think that's about all I have at this point in time. We've kind of gone on here for, for a little while. So is there anything else that you want to add here on this particular topic before I let you go? No, I'm, I'm glad you're, I mean this sincerely, I'm glad you're interested. I think this is the kind of stuff that doesn't nearly get as much attention as some of the flashier bits. And I do think, I don't want to predict too much, but I do think there's going to be an interesting couple of years as this government tries to tries to get their agenda through, but they're going to have to negotiate a lot more and listen to people maybe a bit more too. Yeah, well, I do think it's a little more exciting from uh, when watching a minority government, just because you never know oh, if yeah. things are going to pass or fail. Oh, yeah. So it always That's makes it. things more interesting from, for me as a media person. So I'm looking forward to it no as well. No doubt. Thanks, Nathan. That. Appreciate your time. All right, Jeff. Take care now. That was Nathan Cullen, a former NDP leadership candidate and former longtime MP for the Northern BC riding of Skeena, Oakley Valley. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.